Imagine a world where time drifts slowly. A world where music carries you away. Experience pure moods, the perfect soundtrack for your way of life. Direct from Europe, this multi-platinum collection has won the hearts of millions. Set adrift with the timeless pleasures of tubular bells. Or take a trip into the unknown with the X-Files theme. No other collection gives you the feeling of pure moods. To order pure moods, call the number on your screen or send check or money order for the amount shown, plus shipping and handling. Rush delivery available. Call now. I know the rent is in your eye. What are you trying? Welcome to the Cinematic Void Podcast. Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area as well as virtually. I'm your host, Jim Branscombe, and joining me as always is... Hey, it's Nick Vance, Paranormal Futures on all social media platforms. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all major podcast platforms. If you want to support The Void, you can consider joining our Patreon. Not only you get cool perks, but you make this podcast as well as the Cinemadness movie possible. All right, Jim, it's been a little while. What do we get into, man? Well, I figured before we get into today's topic, we should do a little recap because I think the last time we actually recorded an episode was in January and we didn't even do it in person. We were doing it over Zoom or Riverside FM, which is the new way we've been trying to do like the non-in-person ones. And... A lot of it had to do with, like, you guessed it, COVID, which is... <laughs> you guess, guessed it, Frank you, Stallone. Yeah, you guessed it, Frank Stallone and COVID. But now we're, we're we're together again in the the Paranoid Futures podcast recording studio. And, yeah, we're just going to kind of recap a lot of stuff because a lot has happened. And, like, obviously we had an episode in February with the one with... Um, Diane Prince, shout out to Darcy. That was a fun episode, but we recorded that back in December. <laughs> yeah, that was last year, bro. Yeah, it, I mean, I'm sure her talking about all the Christmas records she was listening to at the time should have gave you a clue. But right. anyway, so as we're recording this, like tomorrow I'll be hosting a screening of Patrick Still Lives. By the time you're listening to it, that screening would have already happened. And probably a few others but i feel like you actually use the word offensive i think you said it was an offensive film and that's why i was like oh oh I, for sure i am going tomorrow oh it is an offensive <laughs> film it is you know a lot of italian horror movies get very sleazy and gross and violent and can be misogynist stuff like that patrick still lives takes it to a whole other level it is just a filthy fucking movie and i think david gregory from severed films i was just on the severed films podcast mm-hmm. I did a little walk on to promote the show nice. while they were, you know, talking about their new releases. But 
He said that Patrick Still Lives has probably the most horrendous, horrible, violent, offensive death in any horror movie ever. Okay. And if you've seen it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you haven't seen it, I cannot recommend you go see it. (laughs) Sold. Yeah. But for those of you who love really sleazy fucking dirtbag, you know, Italian exploitation movies... This will be right up your alley. And it could also be the last screening I actually get to host because I get canceled. <laughs> but you know, you never know. I mean, we, we joked about it like on the Severed Podcast, and I was like, I'd you know, put a bunch of trigger warnings on it. And I don't really do trigger warnings, not because I don't think people shouldn't know that there's offensive things or things that could be you know triggering, but I feel like if it's an exploitation movie, it's designed to be offensive. It's designed to push buttons and stuff like that. However... I ain't a fucking idiot. I'm covering my ass on this one. <laughs> right on. But people should do their own fucking research. Yeah, but like, it, <laughs> I can't trust people to actually do that. No doubt. No so, doubt. You know, you can just appreciate that sometimes people just come out because it's a cinematic void show. Yeah. And if you get the sh- living shit offended out of you, so be it. <laughs> I mean, I, I showed some pretty rough and offensive things on this cinematic movie, like Devil Fetus. Or, yeah. no, not Devil Fetus. Sorry. That's, a, that's another offensive Hong Kong movie. We showed Fetus. Yeah, and that that pushed some buttons. So yeah, yeah. Okay. and uh, yeah, it, instant purchase for me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it, anyway, I I kind of kid, but like I I just wanted to cover my bases because I know some people are just gonna because it's the brand think it's like oh it's a fun goofy Italian horror movie like you know, no burial ground. It's actually by the producer burial ground and has the mom from burial ground in it, nice. who has some of the most horrible things happen to her on camera in all of Italian cinema, mm-hmm. and this is definitely the worst. And this is saying that her her son her zombie son bit her nipple off in burial ground. And this is way, way fucking worse. But we're talking a lot about Patrick still lives here. So we hadn't done a podcast in person and, you know, it'd be fun to kind of recap. And, you know, one of the big things that kinda of happened since we recorded was January Giallo. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, at the end of the day, there's actually if you go to the Cinematic Void YouTube channel, there's a I've been doing vlogs, and I've been doing show recaps, and I've done a couple location things I did. So far, I've done Walking the Edge, the Robert Forrester movie, little location thing, and I did one of 10 to Midnight at the Arrow Theater, just kind of matching stuff up. But mainly, I've been doing like show recaps, and I did a big one on January Giallo, if you want to check that out. just talks about overall, but like I feel like I should talk a little bit about that whole thing, because that was a massive undertaking of what ended up being five different venues across the country with a ton of movies to promote and you know traveling to you know the boston area brookline mass which i guess is still technically within boston i forget how I, it has one of those weird like you can take you can drive across one like street and you're back in boston and then you cross another street you're back in brookline kind of thing oh nice okay it's i i, I want to give a shout out to mark anastasio midnight mark at the coolidge for you know inviting me out or you know, I I said, like, yeah, I might come out for one of the screens. Like, oh, dude, please do. And, like, you know, made it, you know, it was a very great experience. It was fucking cold that yeah. whole time. It was, like, single-digit cold. Jesus fucking Christ. Like, I, you and I used to live on the East Coast, and occasionally we had to deal with that shit. Yeah. Living in L.A. and then going and dealing with five-degree weather. Fucking hell, man. Nope. Yeah, nope. But... Besides it being freezing fucking cold, like, it was really cool. Like, that, the Coolidge Corner Theater is a great theater to see a movie in. You know, did 
Umberto Lenzi's Orgasmo, like, it was the same print I saw, I guess, probably almost 20 years ago. Like, it was a print from private collector Harry Guerrero. And it was just, you know, it's kind of crazy to see the same print 20 years later at a different venue. And it still looked pretty good. It was obviously faded because of the era and all that, but, like, it still had a lot of color. And it was just kind of a cool experience. Also, went and hung out with a um, friend of the void, Derek Millen, who does Detours vlog, who we had on the Salem episode. Had some drinks, shot the shit. And... I think Derek was like, let's call Nick. Let's call yeah, Nick. You got drunk and FaceTimed me. Hell yeah. My bad for not answering. Yeah. What, <laughs> what, what, what criterion title was, were you watching? I was, I was, I swear I was busy doing something, but yeah, I, I, I couldn't answer at the time. No, you're, I think you were watching oh, when the crane, or, I, I, I went to see cranes are flying. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, you, you chose art over us talking to you. Sorry. I see how it is, but I did tell Derek that we'll have him back on the episode, and it'll be on when you're on as well. Right on. What's we up, had, Derek? Yeah, what's up? Shout out to Derek Millen. And if you haven't yet, check out Detours. It's probably one of the best like vlogs. And if you're looking to learn about Salem, Massachusetts, and all the cool shit to do there, definitely hit that subscribe button on Detours. But, you know, January Jail was a massive thing. And it's just like, it's kind of hard to gauge success being so deep inside of it. Because, like, you know... There's a lot of shows like, you know, I'm doing a show every Monday. And when I went to, you know, Brookline to the Coolidge, like I flew out on Friday. I flew back a Sunday so I could host a screening on that Monday. Mm-hmm. So ran myself pretty ragged. And then because January Jalo did pretty well on Mondays here, the Cinematech was like, hey, Jim, why don't you do some more Mondays? <laughs> And I was like, I guess. And it's not that I don't like doing screenings, but it's just like. It was kind of like running a marathon and then getting handed a baton to keep running kind of thing. So I I ended up doing a vampire thing uh, called Love Bites for February for the Cinematheque. And wasn't really planning on it. Actually, the reason I ended up getting Monday is because I pitched something else and I had a movie I really wanted to do on Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day. There's no M in there. (laughs) Valentine. Valentine. this is, a, this is a thing I had as a kid, and it, like, it still slips out. I try to catch it, but it's Valentine's Day. Ma- Mazagine. Mazagine, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I had a movie I wanted to do, and I had an old series wrapped around it, and we go to book the movie, and the rights holder said, you're not allowed to book this version of it. You could book a completely compromised version of it. Mm. And it was just like, what? And this is from the same, you know company that has a bunch of other movies that they won't book because of certain things not gonna say the company all that just if you if you notice some movies that are cult leaning that you haven't seen played in a while you can put two and two together leave it at that so i had to fucking torpedo a whole series and i had to like come up with something for february so i ended up on vampires and i'll be honest i'm not a big vampire guy but it's like, if I got to do vampires, I'm going to do vampire movies I like. So I did Life Force, Toby Hooper's Life Force, which is a lot of fun. Caroline Williams, star of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, actually came out. Who it, This was all made during Toby Hooper's canon films, or canon group era, where he made Life Force, Invaders from Mars, and Chainsaw 2. Like that was, He had a three-film deal. Life Force didn't do well at the time. It was the most expensive of them. And like, the only one that made money was like Chainsaw 2, which was the cheapest of the three. Yeah. It was also the one that Canon didn't understand. Like, they did it. You've seen the Chainsaw 2, like, poster where they pose, like, the fucking breakfast club yeah, and yeah, stuff totally. like that. They didn't understand that it was a parody. Like, they didn't understand the marketing. It's like, what the fuck is this shit? Kind of thing. Yeah, those guys are weird as hell. 
Yeah, like, <laughs> I'm getting off topic, but I, I, I showed Toby Hooper's Life Force. Then on Valentine's Day, I actually showed Fright Night, which, you know, directed by Tom Holland, one of the great kind of 80s vampire movies. And I tried to get the director, Tom Holland, not to be confused with fucking Spider-Man, completely different person, to come out. And, like, he couldn't make it, but he co- recorded a little video intro for it. So that was kind of cool. And, you know, it was kind of cool to watch it, like, I could say a non-traditional Valentine's movie on Valentine's, and there's a romance to it. Yeah. I think most vampire movies like have romance to it or something like they're, that. They're all horny as hell. Yeah, and then speaking of horny, I followed that up with The Hunger, mm-hmm. which, like, weirdly, I got a completely different crowd for that screening. Yeah, like the Bowie crowd. Well, it was the Bowie. It was the Bowie crowd. It was the Goth crowd. It was like people who've like heard of, you know, heard of The Hunger, never seen it. Okay. Like I'm in, I'm in that camp. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's Tony Scott's directorial debut, and like, you know, obviously people know that Bauhaus does Belly Lugosi's Dead at the opening of it, mm-hmm. and like, it's a really interesting movie. It's just like, but is also the one I didn't do a 35 millimeter print on, so I knew right. Yeah, they they somehow sent uh three DCPs for that show, and <laughs> it's like, why do you send us three of the same exact thing? <laughs> How many versions of the fucking Hunger are there? I don't know. No, I, for some reason they just sometimes will send you three DCPs. Like here you go, pick them, <laughs> pick which one you want to screen. So, so did the Hunger, and then I closed things out with Bob Clark's Death Dream, aka Dead at Night, which may or may not be a vampire movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, he mm-hmm. does drink blood. The, the old monkey's paw. Yeah, you know more more than a vampire movie for sure. I know Bob Clark is. You know, he's made a quintessential sex comedy, which is Porky's. He made mm-hmm. quintessential, like, slasher, which, you know, Black Christmas. Right. And I mean, he made, you know, one of the quintessential Christmas films. I mean, it's just beloved yeah. holiday classic. You know, even if you don't love it, you have to respect it. Like, a it's, Christmas it's, story, it's, yeah. It's just, you know, it's, I mean, it is his most famous film. Yeah, it you is. It's um, he, quite a career. And funny enough, you can tie that back to vampires because it starred Darren McGavin, who was Cole Jack the Night Stalker. Nice. <laughs> but we're talking about Death Dream, which is actually it's Death Dream is probably my favorite Bob Clark movie. Yeah, I same and and you, you know me, man. I've just always the the title alone. I love the title Death Dream, and I'll I'll call I'll call my new band Death Dream, their new record Death Dream. I'm gonna call you know. I'm gonna name my first my firstborn child Death Dream. <laughs> I mean, we got that mirrored Crip record called Death Dream that hasn't come out yet. You know, maybe one day. Maybe one day. But yeah, I did that. And kind of speaking of death, I also at the beginning of February I did a screening of Grindhouse releasings, um, brand, brand new 4K restoration of Death Game, mm-hmm. which starred Sandra Locke, who was used to be Clint Eastwood's significant other, but she was in a ton of things, Oscar nominated, directed stuff on her own also had colleen camp who went on to be in like she was in apocalypse now she was in clue and things like that and seymour cassell who was like a lot of cassavetti's street cred then a little bit of wes anderson stuff later in his career it's a probably one of the wildest exploitation movies ever made like the director peter trainer like never made another movie after that i mean he produced other things but that was the only movie he directed i i did a q a with colleen camp and Director of photography, as well as editor, David Worth. And actually, David had been waiting years to see this movie look restored. Because like, he's like, I never wanted to watch it on VHS. I always wanted to see how it was intended. So he finally got to see it. And the craziest fact about David Worth, like, as I said, he shot it. He edited it. Seymour Cassell got pissed off 
during the production of the movie. And when they asked him to come back and loop lines, he's like, fuck you, I'm not doing it. So David Worth had to dub in Seymour Cassell the whole entire movie. The whole movie. The whole movie is fucking <laughs> David Worth's voice. And you could tell, but it was just like, it just kind of gives the extra weirdness to it. Yeah. And the screening was really cool. You know, shout out to Bob Morowski from Grindhouse. And Eli Roth showed up because he had actually directed the remake of Death Game, which is Knock Knock. Oh, right. And he was friends with Colin Camp, and he did a little intro, and that was kind of cool. So Nice. And as we were talking about all the stuff, I guess I'm doing more Mondays. I think this, for March, because this podcast will at least come out in March, I'm doing sequels. As I said, or as we said early on, Patrick Still Lives is the kickoff. And we're all, I'm also doing Phantasm 2 with one of the stars. And I don't, I'm still working, at this time I'm still booking the last two. But Christmas I, Vacation 2, I can't wait. Yeah, yeah, fuck you. But <laughs> <laughs> No, I, one of them is going to be Dirty Harry movie, The Deadpool, which is ridiculous. And I, cool. I wanted to do Revenge of the Ninja, but there's no materials for it for okay. the final one. Because I, I, I thought I should do it like a ninja sequel just for fucking kicks, but like they're just not available. So mm-hmm. it's probably going to end up being Halloween 2 or something okay. like that. Something from Universal or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like a crowd pleaser sequel. Cool. But that's what In Theater Void's been up to. And, you know, kind of want to close talking about like what has been going on this whole time. By the time this podcast airs, it's going to be announced that March, after two years because of the pandemic, two-year anniversary, the Cinematis movie is no longer going to be monthly. Mm-hmm. It's not going away. There's an episode coming out in June that will be presented by Culture Shock Releasing, and there will at least be a Halloween special and a Christmas special coming up. But I just kind of felt like two years, 48 episodes, not cl- counting the Patreon-exclusive ones, which there's another like three or four of those, it just like it just seemed time to kind of like wind it down a little bit, and it's kind of a hard decision because like I know people loved it and all that, but like you know coming out of the pandemic and working through the pandemic, I've developed a severe case of burnout, like mm-hmm. no bullshit, and it takes it's taken its toll, you know. Like we were talking before we started recording about like this podcast, it's like you're we're lucky we have like a template or notes or anything. Because, like, I haven't had the fucking energy to do it. And, like, Cinematis movie, it's, like, it's fun, but it's very, very time-consuming for me to do. Because it's, like, you gotta get the movie file. I gotta chop it. Then I gotta find commercials. Then I gotta figure out, like, what commercials go where. Gotta write and record host segments. And those take forever. Because, like, it's funny doing live intros, wing it, improv, all cool turn a camera on me to fucking like do it like serious and like have things to say take takes you 10 times oh shit man there's like ten, <laughs> there, one of these days i should do the like outtakes of every time i fuck oh, up nice like but, but it's like 10 minutes of me like just fucking up the most basic things forgetting people's names and stuff like that it's just it's terrible yeah but i think i think i said this on previous like episodes where we talked about the cinematic movie but it takes about like four to five days you know three to four maybe five to finish an episode. Yeah. And with everything reopened, it's like having five, four, three, four, five days to actually do it has been like really tough. And it's just like, you know, it's like, I love it, but it's just like, I also never took a break from it. Like, yeah. you know, 
TV shows don't like continually run monthly. You know, I know podcasts can or whatever, but like, you know, there's times like we record a bunch of episodes and then we don't record for a little bit because we have content already made. And like, I tried to do that for the cinematic movie, but like working with like various distributors and like trying to get, you know, films lined up and stuff like that, it wasn't always working out. And it's just like, it also has to still be fun for me. Yeah. And like it, I don't want it to feel like a chore and it kind of, started feeling like a chore and it's just like you know it's like i want to do the best thing possible for it so it's like i'm not saying this because i'm trying to be negative or anything like that i'm just saying it's just like i'm just fucking tired (laughs) yeah and in a way that like you know you know as we're going to talk about you know for the podcast we're going to keep it monthly we might get another episode in there here and there but like it's just like scaling back to be realistic because it's just like it's just a lot of work to do like all this stuff. It's like I work a full time job, and Cinematic Void is a full time job, and uh, even your your full time job and everything in between, all are film related. And Jesus Christ, at at one po- at what point you just go like, I fucking hate film right now. Oh, I, I <laughs> it's weird because you know? I I. I not gonna lie, like there's times like I don't want to watch a film. Yeah. Like half the time, like when I go to watch stuff, like obviously Letterboxd, I've been on point, but it's like I've been making a point to kind of like fall in love with movies again and mm-hmm. just watching them and just enjoying them and like staying off my fucking phone and stuff like that. Cool. Like my reward is writing a little quippy like letterbox review at the end of it or whatever. Yeah. But just trying to engage in film again because like doing all this stuff for the past few years and even a little bit before that, it's just like film becomes like, you know, cause cinematic void live shows, they're not just a film screening. They're an event. Mm-hmm. not saying anyone can go like pick a movie and present it because a lot of people can do that and they do it well, but it's just like, it becomes this big thing because I like think about the marketing and the promoting of it. And it just like, it becomes this cycle thing. Right. It's like, you know, it's like you could, you could see, I'm just going to use the example. You can see Death Dream at a different theater, but if you're going to see it as a cinematic void show, it's going to be its unique experience. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, it's, I don't know, man. It's just like, I know a lot of people like kind of Netflix and chilled and other stuff during the pandemic. And I just, I worked through it. I know you work through it. Yeah. And, you know, essentially I worked two jobs through it. I mean, void's always been like a second job, but like since the pandemic, it like, you can't have two things consuming you as much. And also, it's just like, I also want it to be good. I want the podcast to be good. I want to be cinematic movies to be good. And it's like, if I'm just sitting here like, oh, we got to have content out because everyone loves content kind of thing. I feel like that's a bullshit disservice to sure. doing this, you know, in general. Things might not be as frequent as they once were, but like, just know it's just like, I'm trying to recharge my batteries because I want to come back and do kick-ass shit at the end of the day. And it's just like, you know, it kind of sucks to admit. And it's like, I don't even like admitting. I like lost sleep over like, ah, should I do this? Should I like not do the cinematic movie? Should right. I keep it going? And ultimately you just kind of power through it and just, you just go and you just do. And you, I, that, and that's the thing is like you, you acknowledge that you're, you're burnt out, but then you just go, ah, oh, fuck it. I'm just going to keep going. And you keep burning yourself out. No, it, it, <laughs> it's to the point that like, you know, when I have days off, like I can't do anything. Yeah. People are like, Hey, you want to go hang out? You want to go like grab a drink or go see a movie or whatever, you know? And it's like, nah, <laughs> actually, no, I don't. <laughs> it's just like, I just sit on the couch with the cats and like 
don't move and don't engage. I feel like in order to do Cinematic Void, I have to like turn myself on. Like, you know, as a performer or whatever, like even doing this podcast, like you have to put on like, up, oh, got to be Cinematic Void mode. You got to be yeah. Cinematic Void gym. And it's just like, I don't even know who fucking regular gym is. Yeah. Because when that all shuts down, I'm just like a morose motherfucker. Yeah, man. Anything like that. Fucking A. And it's just like, I don't want to be that way. So I'm just trying to gain some sanity for myself as well as like still do things I love and not lose the love because it's just like, I feel like, you know, two years cinematic movie. We started basically, I think the first episode might have been the day after my birthday or on my birthday, Mm -hmm. like in 2020. Can't remember what that Friday was. And, you know, this episode or the episode that's going to come out probably before this podcast is, you know, March 11th. So it's almost two years to the month of doing these. And they started weekly, which I did 16 weeks straight. And then it went to, I tried to do monthly and I was like, no, I'm going to do bi-monthly. So I kept doing two episodes a month. And I did that probably through like least June or July last year. And then I kind of scaled it back to one. And it's just like, at this point, it's just like, you know, I know people still love them. And I know there's an audience outside of L.A. that, like, really appreciates and enjoys them. And with that said, it's like, the, the other thing I'm going to do just in the meantime, just so it's like, it still exists, is that on Void Patreon, I'm going to start uploading all the previous episodes. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do, like, probably one or two a month just to kind of get them up. Cool. Just because there's not a home, because if I put them on YouTube, they get flagged for dumb copyright shit. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's even stuff, like, I have permission to use. It's, like, the amount of times, like, a commercial will get flagged because a band sampled that commercial. Oh, shit. Like, the amount of times, like... It, this is funny because, like, when we did the Burial Ground episode, it got hit with a copyright thing because some death metal band sampled Burial Ground. Nice. And then cl- <laughs> claimed it as a material. So, what I hit back, it's like, actually... It's from the movie Burial Ground, who I have permission to screen. Do you have permission to use that sound clip? Hell yeah. So that, Get him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, it's fine, but it's just like, I feel like it's like, dude. But also, bands should be able to use whatever sound clip they like, and that's how I feel about it. God damn it. Well, no, I actually, I'm actually, <laughs> I'm okay with bands using sound clips. Totally. But it's just like, don't try to fucking like monetize. Yeah, like, but this whole YouTube crazy thing is, you know, it's it's annoying as hell. I mean, it, it's not even really the bands. It's like whatever the label yeah, is like. Yeah, and it's a, it's a, just a crawler. You know what I mean? It's just some algorithm that like picks it up. Like no one no one cares that you have it on there. No one no, no one thinks you're making money from it. You know, it's, it's all just such a ridiculous fucking move. Yeah. I don't know. Whatever, man. Whatever. But <laughs> speaking of bands, I think this is a good point to transition to what the actual episode is. And probably people are like, just get on with it at this point. Just get but, on with it. But, but but we aren't going to get on with it. We aren't going to talk about films that you've seen today. <sighs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. We're not going to talk about film. Well, well, we'll we'll talk about those and rewatch listen. But for today's premise, it was a this idea has been kicking around for a little bit and it's been on the schedule a few times and we just kind of moved it for like other stuff cuz we got guests or like had a better idea at the time. And I kind of want to save it cuz this is something I really want to do and really think about. So the concept of this podcast, if you're still listening at this point, I guess if I'm saying that and you're hearing that, you're obviously still listening. And if you're not, you wouldn't know. So fuck you if you're not listening. Anyway, the premise of this episode is 
it's albums that could be movies. So it's like you, both of us love music and we love movies. And I thought it'd be kind of fun to like think about certain albums in the context of like what would you if you, you know sometimes it's a vibe from the music sometimes it's like something lyrically something that just speaks to you is like you have a vision you can see like a movie based on this album now we didn't say this is a hard rule but like i you know i try to avoid it con- i tried to avoid concept records because i feel like that's a little too right 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 totally yeah that's a kind of a gimme you know cuz like easily we could have done like you know cursive records like from a mm-hmm. shout out to tim casher because he writes some amazing concept records that could easily be movies but i thought that'd be a little too easy yeah. so i'm definitely waiting on that domestica movie that'd be good ugly organ man come yeah. on right on yeah he might do it well uh, we'll just needle him about that but i think we did on the podcast maybe even. oh we did <laughs> we, we did needle him to do a fucking cursive werewolf concept record all oh, right yeah yeah yeah. i'll have to hit him up and remind him about episode that. number for, I, the, for the folks Episode number. Do we want, don't know these things. We it, don't know these it things. Is, it's somewhere in the 30s, somewhere. <laughs> you can find it. Yeah, it's, it is the Werewolf 80, 81 episode. So yeah, yeah. Whatever right that on. number is. It is. It's somewhere. It's not. It's below 40. It's above. I don't know. It came out sometime Four. last year. You'll yeah, find it. You'll find it. God damn. Why'd you ask me I that? I know. You should know these things because I, I don't. I'm fucking burned out, dude. <laughs> I, I don't even know my. <laughs> I fucking forget my fucking eight, my debit card like pass like passcode half the time because I can't remember shit anymore. Christ, dude! I, the amount of times I go to pay for something, I'm like fuck. I hope this is it because otherwise I ain't getting groceries this week. Anyway, but so the premise is we're gonna talk about some albums that we think could be translate into movies. So we're gonna take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll start talking. Albums that could be movies on the Cinematic Void Podcast. They taught us how to love. They taught us how to live. And now they're back. Monster Ballads. 35 powerful hits on two CDs and two cassettes. It's awesome! than the legendary artists of Monster Ballads. This 35-track collection is not sold in stores. Rush delivery available. Every bad boy has a soft side. Get Monster Ballads. 
want to call the number on your screen or visit our website. Two CDs, $26.99. Two cassettes, $21.99. Do it now. Welcome back. We are talking about albums that could be movies or, you know, music that could be turned into a cinematic experience here on the Cinematic Void podcast. And we're going to buck tradition today because Nick is like, dude, can you go first? You've, you've given me a writing assignment this week. Uh, and, and it's cool as hell. But yeah, I, I guess I'm being a little shy here and I'm just going to let you do your thing and then I'm going to jump in. See, I didn't put that much effort into this. When you told me, like, I've wrote a thesis about my first pick, it's just like... You know, and I did, but, uh, you know, well, but also, I guess, you know, as lazy or as much as I can procrastinate sometimes, you know, when I do something, I do try to devote myself to it a little bit. So, you know, yeah, I'm a fucking pro. Hey, my pick, I had to. All right. <laughs> so, not no spoilers for Nick's pick, so I'm we're bucking tradition and I'm going first. So, my first pick... Or just a pick. I guess there's no first whatever. We're, we're doing like two or three of these each or something like that. But, you know, my first pick is... It's actually an instrumental hip-hop record. And it's funny enough because the the classic record by this group just dropped on streaming pretty recently. Again, I don't know if it's legit, but like, seems legit. Might not be legit. Might be gone by the time this podcast comes up. But... This record's currently not on streaming, but there's plenty of ways you can listen to it. And I am talking about Little Johnny from the Hospital by Company Flow. I'm assuming, I'm not assuming, I'm pretty sure you've heard this record before. I know Fun Crusher Plus super well. Uh, I don't know, I don't, I really don't know this one. So, a little backstory behind this record. So, the first time I heard this record was through our mutual friend and, you know, former bass player in a band we were in together called Inspite, Jason Worm. Mm -hmm. Jason Worm was, like, big in the fucking hip-hop. It was, like, two things he was big into. It was, like, kind of, like... DC, you know, he's in the Antioch era and like, I don't know what the fuck you would call that stuff. Like, uh, you know, the, the original version of what was called emo. Yeah. You know, the late eighties or whatever. Late eighties, early nineties, mm-hmm. like that, that style emo and hip hop. Like those were his two bags. And he introduced me to a lot of stuff. Like he was the first person who played comedy flow for me. And he played the fire in which you burn slows. If you ever heard that song with that Robbie Shankor fucking sample, it's fucking insane. <laughs> Like, I don't know if you like this dude, but if you can get into it, it's like really cool. And I was like, I was hooked on that shit. So he played me stuff and he's like, here, it's like, you might, he's like, he always said, like, I don't know if you would be into this. Like, that's usually how he set it up. Nice. <laughs> it's like, but you know, this is the, this is the follow up to Fun Crusher Plus. It's just an instrumental record. So he puts on Little Johnny from the hospital and I start hearing stuff and there was a track that played it like immediately, like kind of clicked with me because it, it reminded me of like a goblin cue. 
Okay. And just just on the off chance, you don't know who Goblin is. Goblin is the Italian prog rock band that scored, you know, Dario Argento's classic Suspiria as well as Deep Red. And then variations of the band scored other stuff. But they also did soundtracks for Eurocrime stuff, Contamination, Beyond the Darkness, a bunch of stuff. And there was a cue that kind of reminded me of like more of the, um, I'd say, Contamination soundtrack a little bit. Mm-hmm. And this became a record when I, like, when I was in film school and like I was writing screenplays or working on projects. This was always a record I threw on because like there was just something very cinematic to it. Like it sounded like a soundtrack to a movie. And I don't know what kind of movie. I mean, you know, if you know anything about LP from Company Flow, who's now in Run the Jewels and stuff like that, like, you know, that stuff, he was very big into dystopian sci-fi stuff. Like, you know a lot of Blade Runner references, and, like, if you listen to Fun Crusher Plus, there's an extended sample of the Holy Mountain on there. And it's just, like, I don't know if he listened to any, like, kind of, like, that kind of stuff when they were, like, putting that record together, because it's a weird record, because it was the follow-up to Fun Crusher, because, like, they were on Ruckus, which was, like, the big indie hip-hop label in, like, the mm-hmm. mid to late 90s, or I guess it started, like, early 90s, but they had their run. Oh, yeah. And, like, I... Essentially, like, one of the members of Company Flow left the group, and Ruckus like, yo, we need another record. Here you go. Yeah, they yeah. Turn so in a fucking instrumental record. record. Yeah, it's like, here's our fucking Beats record. And they're like, are you guys going to rap on it? No. Yeah. And uh, and the label's like, all right, cool. Or I wonder if there was a little bit of a... Well, I you know, that record, like, if you listen to it, like, I don't think they really did a mix, like, or mastered it. Yeah. It... But with that said, like, the actual content of the record is really cool. And, like, you know, obviously there's some callbacks to Fun Crusher on it. But, like, just listening to it, it just reminds me of, like, this really interesting, like, dystopian horror movie. Like, I would sneak it into, like, student film projects. Like, mm-hmm. I would sneak it into, like, cinematic boy trailers. Because, like, all the, it just, it sounded like a fucking movie soundtrack. And it's just so good. Actually, the other thing I want to mention is, like, some of the cues reminded me of the unreleased like library cues from dawn of the dead the george romero film mm-hmm. there's like moments i think like i think sunrise is the track there's like there's a track on the company flow or on fun or little johnny from the hospital that kind of reminds me of that and it's just like it, they don't sample it but it's just like there's just this vibe of like sinister evil dystopian world and like i'm not a big sci-fi guy but like i can make like a horror movie or like you know Something that could, like, it could go the way of, like, say, Terry Gilliam's Brazil, Soylent Green, or something like that. I think there's a lot of, like, different avenues you can work with it. Mm-hmm. And it's just, like, it's a really cool vibe. I wish someone would, like, just take that music and put a movie to it. Like, even if it's, like, an abstract, experimental movie or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I might just do a, my own audio-visual mix to it at some point. I probably should, because I've used it enough times at this point. Nice. Snucking into things. And this is... This is kind of one of the records that kind of inspired to do this episode anyway. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, if you, it's not widely available. The CD's way out of print, but if you go on YouTube, the whole album's on there. Totally. Just just give it a listen. Just kind of like imagine either a dystopian sci-fi movie, a dystopian kind of horror movie, or just like some weird grimy like New York movie where shit just gets bad and goes worse and worse kind of thing. Like a more like dirty, dirty and like dirt bag like after hours or something like that. There's a lot of possibilities for it. Yeah. So that's my pick. All right, Nick. Let's let's get at the fucking 
scholar stuff put in your monocle oh god well i hope I'm, i haven't talked my my thesis up too much here now now, now i want to back backtrack and be like well you know i just kind of threw it together and uh you know i just kind of off the cuff just kind of like had some ideas but uh yeah let me pull my little notes here all right so my pick would be uh the debut lp by e-town concrete the uh new jersey hardcore band uh, definitely a favorite of mine and i and i'm i would assume that a favorite of yours at least in a certain point in time in both of our lives oh, uh, I, in I, in high school and then i i know that we've definitely had like maybe a renaissance or you know we we definitely uh there was a period of time where i felt like i was over this band i was i was better than this or something you know what i mean like i got into some like indie rock or something and got you know thought i was too cool for it i'll never fully escape my you know inner white trash (laughs) 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 and and that's not a slight to because again i mean i absolutely love this band and and i mean like you know i i did grow up in a in a poor part of baltimore and you know just there's a very east coast thing that that exists and you know from new jersey to baltimore to wherever else and uh you know there's just like there's poor white areas and poor black areas and the culture of the time uh very much so influenced this record you know and again uh it's also why i was so drawn to it even though i was living out in the county at the time you know we were going to high school together and you know i wasn't really down in this like poor area anymore i was now in the poor area of like aberdeen <laughs> you know but uh but but it was still it was the suburbs it was the come up you know what i mean we, we moved the suburbs baby fucking prince of beverly hills you know and uh fucking but man when i heard e-town concrete and we had gotten we were into punk and you know we we were into punk and we and metal and whatever and there was this like era of hardcore that started coming out in the 90s that was you know metal based so like and i'm talking like stuff that was on victory records e-town concrete stuff like that there was local bands to baltimore like torn apart next step up um there's also like gut instinct as far as like old baltimore history hardcore goes uh, you know it's all this like tough heavy guitars and and violent shows and the violence was appealing to us you know the it, just all of it it was just like to our to like we were into punk rock and then we heard this shit and it really blew our minds i agree but the other element at the time was like you know while we listen to punk rock and metal and stuff like that like at least for me and probably for you you're still listening to some hip-hop and like, oh yeah at the time this record's coming out like the things that were big was like i think this came out pretty close to when wu-tang forever came out mm-hmm. definitely and, and the other thing is like this is i mean let's talk about it like you've kind of not said it but it's a rap metal it, yeah yeah i ha- I hadn't quite gotten there yet um but yeah this is this is i call it a hardcore record but it is definitely very much a i don't want to some people have even called now in retrospect uh referred to e-town as like a new metal band which is which is not accurate no no it's not it's not accurate it's it's revisionist history no you know listen to those fucking snares but, fucking like listen to those snare hits and like it's it sounds like a fucking hardcore record because it's produced like a hardcore record right it's just the dude happened to rap but so at the time, you know, a few years earlier in the 90s, we had like the Judgment Day or Judgment Night soundtrack, rather. Who's the director of the film? I don't know the director of Judgment Yeah, Night. I can't remember. I actually kind of only saw it semi-recently, which I should have seen it way back in the day because my point is that the uh, soundtrack to Judgment Night uh, w- consisted of 
like indie rock and metal bands coordinating and, and writing songs with uh, popular like hip hop acts of the time. So you had everybody from like Slayer and Ice T, uh, Helmet and House of Pain, uh, Dinosaur Jr. and Della Funky Homo Sapien. Yeah, and the list just goes on. It's like it's it's the who's who of like all of the, all, all of those genres at the time combined. Yeah, I mean that you know just. I know we're getting a little off topic, but that Judgment Night, Judgment Night was the first CD I ever bought. Hell yeah. And, like, it was a gateway because it introduced me to, like, you know, obviously, like, I think the big, I think the big thing that was selling it was, like, the Biohazard Onyx song. But, like, you know, Biohazard came from sort of adjacent New York hardcore, New York metal, whatever. I guess they did. And they kind of rapped on it, which is kind of where E-Town probably came from a little bit was yeah for sure they definitely like they heard biohazard once or twice yeah you know (laughs) (laughs) but uh to me you know and people always compare these guys to biohazard but you know what for my money is these guys all day e-town is this is a special special record man this is a special record to me it's perfect in every way and every lyric every i know every drum beat every lyric every everything like it's perfect. You should probably say the name of the record. All right, so I am talking about E-Town Concrete's debut LP, or, well, really, CD, uh, Time to Shine. their demos before this and uh and we were really excited when we when we heard this stuff and so as jim was saying like not only were we like really influenced by like hip-hop and punk rock and we were just getting into hardcore and and a lot of the hardcore is influenced by metal but something about this era of hardcore a lot of the bands uh the the stuff that was really good right even like eton or even uh earth crisis stuff like that a lot of that stuff had this kind of torn apart next step up they had this fucking bounce to it yeah you know what i mean and that's that kind of that's that connection between like hardcore and hip-hop yeah is like a lot of the hardcore had this bounce to it so when we heard e-town it was this next level thing because god damn did they have that bounce but they're i mean this guy is rapping over it you know he's screaming he's rapping man is it you know is it corny what i think it's corny if i heard it for the first time now i don't know again i'm here to defend this well, like you know but 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 looking at it with a critical eye I, uh, it does it hold up i think so but i but i don't have you know i can't look at it you know clearly because i'm you know looking at it through the lens of nostalgia i think this is this is a weird record because it's like it, there's definitely a point where like you know, I'm sure someone's gonna listen to this podcast, go listen to records like the fuck. They're like, gonna say the fuck for sure. Like it, there, there's definitely, <laughs> there's definitely was a period where like this was kind of a joke, and like you know, probably when they start releasing more albums, and like they definitely were like kind of chasing like 
bigger aspirations, and there there's obviously things that were going to hold them back mm-hmm. for a lot of reasons. I mean, they definitely were under the impression, and and I think they should have been, but that they are the next big thing, and they should have like where like the the success that someone like Limp Bizkit had, you know, uh, Etown Concrete deserved, and and knew that they deserved, and talked about it candidly yeah um and and it's in these songs and that's another thing that's special about these songs is that they're very much like a rap record where it's very much i am this i'm gonna do this you know it's not quite i have this car but it is i'm the shit and i'm gonna get this shit and i'm gonna get this shit i'm gonna take what the fuck is mine uh etown concrete time to shine uh it's a movie man and here's why it's a movie I mean, this thing is fucking has just hero's journey written all over it. Um, it opens up with no no thanks. Uh, the main character is just at odds with the world. He lives in a bad neighborhood. There's no way out. His friends are fucking fake. Um, and, you know, he just has to, like, fend for himself. And, you know, is he going to is he going to just like, you know, deal drugs and 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 fucking whatever and just deal like live in that life? Or like, what's he going to do? And it's kind of like. I kind of look at this as like it's kind of telling the story of like instead of instead of like uh, just assimilating and just like falling into the trap of like the poor neighborhood they grew up in, he decided to like start this fucking rock band. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the fucking but but right but is it not like exactly what it is? No, like that... that's the like in the way that rap lyrics are like I am this. It's this like manifesting thing yeah. and it's this journey. You know, <laughs> it's like you can laugh at it, but it's fucking sick. <laughs> no, but like I'm laughing because like that is the intent of the record. It's yeah. just like the amount of times he talks about hard times. Yeah, you know, hard times build character. So I'm told. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, so No Thanks, man. Like, the first track just starts it off and just, like, kind of late, just sets out the whole tone of, of the film, of the record. It's just like, you know, I'm at odds with the world, and this is the fucking game plan. And then it goes into the next song, which is the title track. Fucking, and, and it even, like, it spells it out for you. He says, 1996, it began. Spawning a king, dawning a rain. <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> and... But he fucking means it. You know what I mean? It's just like, yo, this is when we started and we're going to fucking take over. And and you can hear that that he's hungry and he believes it and then you believe it, you know? And it's, again, it's that you're rooting for the underdog and uh, who knows where he's going to go, but hopefully the band works out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. It's a fucking powerful record. I mean, I could go fucking song by song, fucking, you know, time to shine, fucking all my life. I hated those that had more. Now I'm getting mine by taking yours. It's time to shine. Dude, I fucking love this fucking record. I know you do. <laughs> I mean, I feel like how could you not? I don't know. Let me jump, let me jump around here a little bit. I can't I can't do track by track. <laughs> <laughs> don't do track by track. <laughs> but I fucking, God damn it, I will. You know, he they get to the track like for the fame and it's like basically the track is a fucking flashback and he's telling, you know, it's telling a story and he's talking about how his fucking dad was never around and his fucking friends are getting killed in the streets and his mom's on drugs and like, you know, he has to raise himself. The streets raised him. He's fucking basically been abandoned. But this motherfucker's gonna start a band. <laughs> it, I mean... You know, but straight up, like, that's it, right? Like, it's fucking, I don't know, that's sick. This, the, that's the movie, dude. You know, they get to, it, you get to the end of the record. It's the fucking, uh, what's the track? End, end, of, the, of, the end, end of the Rainbow. End of the Rainbow, you know? 
and and it's just powerful it's fucking powerful and it's like it's this like triumphant fucking mirror mirror on the wall look at me i can see it all yeah <laughs> and it's fucking just it's a sick triumphant end and like it it just like ties it up in a nice little bow and like you feel like yo they they're going to like i mean I was definitely convinced by the end of this record that they were going to be the biggest band in the world. You know what I mean? And again, like Corn and Limp Bizkit and that sort of stuff was getting popular, but this felt like the authentic version of it. Yeah. You know? And it, and it felt like it had a place in modern culture at the time. It, I, I really thought it did. I mean, they clearly also thought it did. And, and I don't know. Anthony now, um, I, I say that like I know him, but um, he, I, he works for like... Uh, Fuck, I don't, I don't know what uh, record label, but you know he's been an A and R guy for years and like does super well for himself. Like he's still in the music industry, so like you know it it all kind of worked out for him. And uh, they do reunions, and I, I saw him a couple years ago with um with Buried Alive, uh, and yeah, it was fucking incredible. I mean, just yo the shit. But yeah, you can you can make a movie from from this from this record for sure, man. And uh, I highly recommend checking it out. I don't believe in miracles. I make my shit happen. That's right. Damned if I do, damned if I don't. And that's like the perfect like biohazard part. But between you and me and everyone else listening, it's better than biohazard. <laughs> I, out of 49 fucking episodes we recorded, this is the most you've talked because it's about <laughs> E-Town Concrete. <laughs> fucking A, right, dude? That's amazing. Hell yeah. It, it, <laughs> you know, maybe we should just always have done the E-Town Concrete podcast or something. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I could have, I could have like analyzed more songs. Like, I've got lyrics. I've got. I mean, we we could go, dude. I'll tell you about every song on this fucking record, and and how you could. That's just another chapter in like the downfalls, the pitfalls of his life. You know, uh, on the way to becoming this rock star. Well, I mean, I, I'll say this for this record. Like, unlike the ones that came after, where like they definitely made a conscious effort to be more mm-hmm. acceptable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Definitely, there was there was some like kind of radio leaning songs, you know, with some like singier parts and stuff like that. Which yeah, it like to to mix results. All right, we're gonna take a quick commercial break, but when we return, more albums that could be movies. Hopefully, Nick's other pick is not an E Town Concrete record <laughs> <laughs> on the Cinematic Void podcast. It's the album that delivers the biggest names in hip hop. The Source presents Hip Hop Hits Volume 3. Get the album in 17 cuts deep with massive hip hop hits. Monster Jams from Trick Daddy, Rough Riders featuring Eve, Eminem, Red Man featuring Method Man, and Jay Z. Pure hip hop brought to you by the source. Get hip hop hits, volume three, on CD or cassette. To order, call the number on your screen now. 17 of the largest cuts in one bad album. It's a slamming set with DMX, Nas, JT Money, and Juvenile. This is one hardcore album jammed with the world's best hip hop artists. Get Hip Hop Hits Volume 3 on CD or cassette. To order, call the number on your screen now. To order Hip Hop Hits Volume 3, use your credit card and call the number on your screen. Or send check or money order for $17.98 for CD or $15.98 for cassette. Plus shipping and handling to the address shown. <laughs> 
Rush delivery available, so call now! Unbearable suspense that keeps you on the edge of an abyss of terror. Take a cult film odyssey into Cinemadness with Cinematic Void. Based in Los Angeles, Cinematic Void is a film series that specializes in horror and exploitation films. Currently, we are hosting Cinematic Void Up All Night in the Cinemadness Movie, a monthly virtual screening series, as well as the Cinematic Void podcast, where we dive deeper into the world of cult cinema. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like what we do, you can support Cinematic Void by joining our Patreon. Until next time, see you in the void. Welcome back. We've been talking about albums that could be films here on the Cinematic Void podcast. And up next is my, I guess, second pick. Again, we are changing up the format in this episode. So Nick's going second and I'm going first, which is kind of throwing me off, but whatever. It's new year, new style, new everything. Or not really new, just doing something different for this episode. I'm sure we'll go back after that. Anyway, for my second pick, I picked a... I picked an album like sort of like when I was talking about Little Johnny from the Hospital. I picked something that like I used to listen to a lot when I was like writing films and that kind of stuff for inspiration. And this record in particular, I definitely saw a movie while listening to it. And it is a record by this band called The Blackheart Procession. They're a San Diego-based indie rock band. I don't think they currently exist, but they could always come back. Um couple of the members or maybe one of the members is in another band is a three mile pilot i think yeah that's uh that was the members band before uh black heart procession i think maybe even more than one of them um there's definitely a similar sound there in the vocals and maybe even some of this the songwriting yeah because i think it's the main guy paul who also works on those jay mascus solo records jay mascus from dinosaur jr i think he does like because diff- he's a multi-instrumentalist and plays like different weird shit like Saul's and stuff like that. And I think he does backup vocals on those Jay Mascus records. They're a little more acoustic or not as like blow your fucking eardrums out. Like the dinosaur junior records, a little more mouth harp mouth (laughs) playing the washboard. Yeah. Definitely. So yeah, black heart procession, I guess we would call really, really, I guess kind of downer music in some ways. Just kind of eerie and at- atmospheric. Definitely, you'll hear the Saul played, Washboard, I think Mouth Harp. I remember seeing this band, god damn it, probably back in 99, 2000 at the old Auto Bar in Baltimore. And I saw them touring on the record that I'm talking about today, which is Three. We try to breathe, but life was never found in you. Now, the first three Blackheart Procession records were all numbers. So they had one, two, and three. And I don't think they were really concept records other than 
I think every the I think the first two records had a song called The Waiter. There's like a Waiter Part One, and I think Black Heart Procession Two had the Waiter Part Two and Three, and Three didn't have a song about a waiter. Not sure why. And then I think one of the later ones had a song called The Waiter Part Five or some shit. Yeah, it's very different, very unique. And I remember seeing them and like they were amazing playing live. So Black Heart Procession, very atmospheric, eerie, and I feel like for these first three records, I could have done this for any of them, but reason why I picked this one is one honestly it's my favorite of those first three but I feel like there's just something about it and why I think this is like an album that could be a movie and this is just yeah lyrics come to play but this is more about vibes I'm working more off vibes than like straight ahead literal kind of things and the vibes I get from this record it's like it's very somber it's eerie because there's a lot of things to do with water and boats and shit like that. I don't know if there's actually songs about boats. There might be on this record. They've definitely done some like kind of like I'd say seaside horror vibes with this stuff and like just a sinking feeling of dread. There's some kind of like, you know, obviously there's some like love songs that could be indie pop songs, but because of the way they're played, the instrumentation, they're just it's just feels like dark and somber and like it feels like you're going on a journey that by the end of it Things are really worse and probably going to get more fucked up once the end credits roll, which is something I like about it. And as I said, I used to, you know, do a lot of writing to this record. And it was just like, you know, I just had this vision and it wasn't like I was trying to adapt this album, but it was just like things I was looking for was just that kind of vibe of just like this underlying, underlying feeling of just like, I mean, hopelessness. And maybe the records aren't that way, but might have had to do with my mental state at the time but like when I listen to those records I get taken back and I just think like shit I think I was in a kind of dark place at the time while I was listening to this stuff those, all, those first three maybe four are yeah they're bleak records they end up being more like more goth than the music that's considered goth music you know what I mean it's way way more depressing and bleak than like your average fucking Susie and the Banshees song or Sisters of Mercy it's like yeah. it's kind of funny because goth music is like everyone's like oh they dress in black and they're all like oh it's sad but you, you know fucking listen to the Cure song they're fucking pop songs yeah that shit's dance music that's yeah, that shit's catchy and it's pop and like I'm not saying these the, this record or the other records don't have like a pop sensibility but it's definitely like that sensibility is turned to, like, depression. Oh, this is definitely not dance music. In fact, well, I will say, though, a lot of it does kind of have uh, kind of a waltz to it. Yeah, I I would say you could say indie folk, but, like, it, it doesn't lean into anything because from song to song, there'd be, like, you know, kind of an acoustic guitar track, and then there'd be, like, a piano-driven track, and then there'd be kind of a rocking track, and then something really, really sparse. With some just like, I don't know, fucking just weird shit going on. There's definitely layers to it. And if you're into like kind of darker folk, indie rock, really interesting kind of like well-crafted storytelling songwriting, check out Black Heart Procession 3. That's my favorite, but you, you can't go wrong listening to the first three or so. And again, I just think the visions I get from this is just like, I think of things like Messiah Evil or Carnival of Souls or like, I just, I just something sinister happening. And like, you know, I'm not saying it's like about 
drowning or water or anything like that. But just, I did a screening series years ago called New England Nightmares. And like, there's just this thing when I think of that term is like seaside town, you know, maybe Lovecraftian in a way or something like that. Yeah. Where it's just like, you're at the edge of the sea and like you're at land, but like there's the unknown is the sea kind of thing. And you might be in a town where there's like evil shit, like, you know, a dead and buried is another good example or something like that. Mm-hmm. I just see a movie with those vibes. It doesn't even necessarily have to be horror. It could be like, it could be like a really somber, dark indie drama. It could be an elevated A24 horror thing. <laughs> right. Something Robert Eggers is fucking doing. I don't know. I think Lighthouse could fall into that kind of vibe. But yeah, this, I, again, you could take it literally or you just go off the vibes. And like for these, I'm just going off the vibes. So that is my number two pick. All right, Nick, what's your number two? So my pick, uh, as far as a record to make into a movie, uh, I'm going with uh, Dag Nasty's kind of major label debut, Field Day. probably two full lengths before this but this is kind of them trying to break into the the next big thing uh dag nasty uh is from dc and they are members of minor threat and doug carrion was the, b- the bass player on this record he was in the descendants uh on he was on the enjoy record by the descendants yeah, were, you, were you gonna say something no i was just gonna say just give the context of dag nasty I mean, because if you know punk rock, you know DC was a hotbed for that for many, many years. And then, like, as hardcore started dying out, like, there was kind of shifts and you got what was originally what people would refer to as emo. But then you had you had bands chasing mainstream. And, I, you know, I think Dag Nasty, because they got a little more melodic. And, like, yeah, there was melodic hardcore, but they were definitely looking towards something else. They were... I'd say almost on the Husker do like trajectory of like getting out of like taking their pop sensibility, which was always to their hardcore tracks. And then just like writing kind of like, I don't want to say pop punk. Cause I don't think that's really, pop. I mean, really it's uh, at the time. I mean, I guess that was like college rock or whatever. Right. You know, like anything that was the replacements, Husker do any of that kind of stuff, or even REM, you know, that kind of anything that was kind of, uh, I think, kind of pre pre what was known as like alternative rock right like in the 90s that was the i'm assuming all all of these are just um you know critic termed kind of things where like kind of after the fact it's called this or whatever but uh but yeah 80 in the 80s the alternative music was college rock or whatever um that wasn't quite punk wasn't quite whatever and i think that this record definitely exists in that realm um and even like late minor threat and probably the reason they broke up was they everybody was kind of getting into fucking u2 that was kind of the and it it sounds ridiculous now especially to think like that some like punk rockers got into u2 
but I think that that was the the direction of that late minor threat EP, um, and and again even Dag Nasty Field Day for that matter. Seven seven seconds. Everybody started having this weird like kind of you could call it new wave, you could call it whatever, but it it, it we will be the new wind, you know. I mean, what I think about like because a lot of people when they think of you two probably think about the time that Apple stuck that fucking album on your iPhone or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I guess you know in the in the eighties, you two was actually known as being a good band, believe it or not, <laughs> and uh, like some of their records were produced by Brian Eno. You know, they, they did, they did some cool stuff. So, uh, I don't know. I was, I was probably too young for you two at that point and I, I don't really get it, but I could admit that like some of that early stuff is kind of cool. I just think like at that time it was just like, you know, even in punk rock and, you know, we talked a little bit about this when we were talking about, when you were talking about E-Town Concrete is that, you know, there was a term for like punk bands, you know, selling out and like at this point. It wasn't really a thing. This was more of a... I guess sellout became more of a 90s thing because, like, no one really gave a shit that Husker Du signed to, like, Warner Brothers. Or, yeah. like, it wasn't a big deal. You know, same with the replacements and all that. No one really looked at it, especially even some of those later SST bands that, like, jumped off when they were signing stuff like Dinosaur Jr. and Sonic Youth. Like, no one really gave a shit that those bands went to major labels. Yeah. I think it was just more like there was a different punk ethos that came in maybe at the tail end of the 80s into the 90s with, like, Gilman Street and the Berkeley punk scene that like the sellout factor came in. It's just like bands had aspirations to make a fucking paycheck and, you know, not fucking starve touring all the time, you know? Right. I, I'm going with the vibe on this, but however, I am also uh, much like the Eton record. I'm going to kind of piggyback off of uh, some of the lyrics uh, that I think kind of tell a story, although it's not a concept record. But but I think it I think that uh, you know this being a movie uh, does come both from the vibe and also slightly influenced lyrically. Um, so in the lyrics, and I, I don't actually even know this to be fact, but I'm assuming that the band at some point moved to California uh, from DC, and that's maybe even how uh, Doug Carrion ended up playing bass for them. Was you know they they have some I think he's a West Coast guy. It would have to be if he was like on the Enjoy EP, you know. Right, or at least he maybe moved to the California for the Descendants and moved back to DC. I, I'm, I'm not really sure, but, uh, but anyway, the lyrics, the lyrics allude to the fact that he's on the beach in California, and he should be writing songs that makes them money, um, but he just like wants to go back home or whatever. He just doesn't care about being on the beach or any of the things that come with that kind of life. It's just, he wants to go back home. So I I think that that makes like a great kind of like John Hughes sort of movie, like definitely from, from the era that the record came from, which is the late eighties. So it really just has that. It's a, it's a new wave rock record anyway, you know? So I think it kind of fits with even how, like, you know, uh, like the psychedelic furs or something like that is for when you think of like John Hughes movies, you know? Yeah. Um, So yeah, I, I think that, not the whole record doesn't play with with like auto autobiographical lyrics or anything like that and i i don't think that's really necessary but it just does have that kind of breezy vibe to it that i that i think fits with that sort of romantic comedy and you could use it as the band the band is the vehicle for the story where it's like you know they're they're trying to make it big or whatever and he's like maybe just going to go back home but it's a but it's a different story than the e-town thing so i guess it is, it's you know it's like, hey, i'm doing the same thing with both records <laughs> But I, you know, E-Town are from the hood and they're trying to rise up 
and, and get away from that struggle. Whereas, I don't know, I don't know that Dagnasty were like privileged, but they, if they move to California, maybe they have it a little better off than a lot of bands. And are they gonna are they gonna make it? Or are they gonna have to go back home with their tail between their legs? Who knows? But, I mean, uh, it's kind of a fish out of water story because yeah. it's just like you know, it's a band within conflict of themselves. Mm-hmm. Because like you got the singer who like kind of resentful, doesn't want to be there. Wishes I don't know if he wishes to be back in D.C. Clearly, doesn't want to be in California. But you know, he could be like his you know another D.C. native, Henry Rollins, who even though he moved to California to be in Black Flag, lived in a fucking shed, which I guess it's like, I don't know what to do with sunshine and the beach. I'll live in goddamn Greg Ginn's shed. Right. Like, probably, uh, you know, by choice. He wasn't forced to live in a shed. He decided to to <laughs> live in this weird place. I don't know. You know, I'm sure they struggled a bit. You know, they're just if they're on the road all the time. He, he wasn't going back to work in ice cream. Yeah. Slinging ice cream. I, guess, I mean, I guess that could be a movie upon itself. I'm surprised no one has done like the Black Flag movie, but it's probably I'm I'm assu- well, I'm actually really fucking surprised no one has done the Black Flag story or get in the van or like something like that. All right. I mean, step up to the plate, Netflix. I mean, I mean, ninety percent of the fucking movie is going to be in the dark of Henry like talking to himself in the fucking like back of the U-Haul as they're on tour, furiously writing poetry in the dark, just like. I dream of getting in a car accident and flipping the van. I mean, that'd be pretty nihilist. I mean, it'd be more depressing than a fucking Blackheart Procession record. Just get, just get out. Just go hang out with your friends in the van. You don't have to hang out back there in the dark. I mean, uh, at with, that, with the equipment. I mean, it's like uh, seeing Bill Stevenson was cool. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, just hang out with Bill Stevenson, Henry. I mean, I don't know why I'm telling you this now when like that was like fucking 30 years ago or whatever. Probably forty years ago at this point. Anyway, Henry's enjoying his time in L.A., but uh, but apparently Peter Cordner from Dagnasty did not, or whoever whoever even wrote this song, I don't goddamn know. But anyway, I think that this would make a really cool movie. Again, John Hughes style, maybe add some r- little romantic elements in there. You know, all the little '80s tropes. He's trying to get the girl. Does he? Is he going to move away? Is he going to quit the band? Who knows? It's going to start another band. Shit. I mean, that's the Brian Baker story, although he didn't start another band. He just joined another <laughs> he just, band. He joins Junkyard, a like 80s hair metal, glam, hard rock sort of band, kind of around the same time as this record. Uh, so, yeah, I guess he was in California. There you go. Well, I but, mean, but then after that, he even joined Bad Religion, became one of one of three guitarists in that band. Yeah. So yeah. it's, yeah, it could be the Brian Baker story. Three guitarists. Three guitarists. Iron Maiden and Bad Religion. Remind me about three guitarists, or I'll remind you when we get to read, watch, listen. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> I mean it, it's kind of just interesting because you think like that Dag Nasty record, just talking about it in general, like it's got some of their best songs. Although some of them were like previously recorded or demos and stuff. Because like I think All Ages Show is my favorite Dag Nasty song, and it's on that record. Yeah. I mean I don't know why they did the Wire cover because Meyer Threat already did the same Wire cover or whatever. Because Brian Baker was in both. That's true. It's like, hey guys. I know what's going to be the big breakout for this record. A fucking Wire cover. Lots of, lots of bands got popular for covers. <laughs> yeah, but that fucking Wire song? <laughs> they should have covered Don Henley. Boys of Summer? <laughs> Boys of Summer is where it's at. That's the hot ticket to, to stardom. The, the Ataris. Oh, that's right. They did do that. Didn't the dude from the Ataris like, get mad at the drummer and then like throw shit at him at oh, some show? a hilarious video. <laughs> <laughs> 
for some reason I saw that pop up <laughs> again. I think it was like Canatonic Youths or something like that had reposted that. Yeah, I think that's where I where I originally found it. Fuck. I mean, we're getting off topic here, but it's just <laughs> You know, there's I, well the band the band in the movie has to implode at some point, and the singer throws a throws his own drum set at him. You know, I think that's that's a great conflict in the movie. The, I actually went and watched that full video, <laughs> and like the drummer did miss some cues, but they were also playing sloppy as fuck. So it's like, weren't they just at like the weren't they just at like Asbury Lanes or something? Yeah, like, I, I've played a, there. Isn't that a fucking bowling alley? Do well, I mean it's a, it's a sick venue. For sure, like I, I, I play there multiple times and, and had a fun every time. But uh, but I'm also kind of laughing that like they were. I mean, dude, they were a huge band, and then they just ended up playing like the lanes. I don't know, whatever. Um, whatever. I don't, I don't know. know. We shouldn't mock a bit. I mean, who cares if a band's big and then not big and whatever else? Hey, enjoy your life, my en- friend. Enjoy your life. But you know, probably best case scenario, don't throw shit at your drummer and then like have to do a solo set on your electric guitar or whatever afterwards. Uh, I have a funny story about the singer of the Ataris, but I'll save that for the next episode where the Ataris randomly come up. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's bound <laughs> it's to happen. for now. <laughs> I mean, you know, today is probably the first time we talked about Black Flag since, like, maybe, like, when we talked about them every fucking episode for, like, the first four or five Cinematic Boy podcasts. Well, he did change the lyrics uh, in when the Ataris covered boys of summer he changed grateful dead sticker on the cadillac to black flag sticker on the cadillac so had we not even mentioned i still would have brought black flag into it with that but uh full circle man there we are all right we're going to take a quick commercial break but when we return we're going to talk about some other potential albums that could be movies and then jump right into rewatch and listen here on the cinematic boy podcast you know what really makes us mad is wasting money on cds with only one or two good songs yeah Tell about punk. Yeah, we got the CD called Punk. It's loaded with our favorite tunes, man. Yeah. Just listen. This punk CD has 36 tunes, man, and I'm telling you, they're all great. Yeah. get Huey Lewis in the news. I want a new drug. Romantics. And the fix. You can only get this CD by calling this 800 number, man. Yeah. So call now. All 36 of these great songs on two CDs for only $26.95. Or two cassette tapes for just $21.95. Here's how to order. To order punk, call the number on your screen or send $26.95 for two CDs or $21.95 for two cassettes plus $4.95 shipping and handling to the address on your screen. Rush delivery is available. Remember, this special offer is not sold in stores. Welcome back. We've been talking about albums that could be movies here on the Cinematic Void podcast, and instead of doing another like kind of full segment, we're just going to throw out a couple other ideas that either I or Nick had that 
we kind of liked, but not enough to kind of like go deep in. And then we're just going to go straight into rewatch and listen here. So I'm just going to, we're just going to mention them, talk about them real quick and then move on. One of the picks was, at least for me, was Electric Wizard Witch Cult Today. And the reason why I'm picking them is just like, if you ever listen to the band, it's like doom metal, doom sludge, whatever the fuck you want to call it. Whatever fucking like hipster term you want to give to them, you know, and the, probably now they're just like dirty rock and roll or something like that. But, you know, they're big movie people, you know, like a lot of their imagery and songs are about, you know, a lot of there's Lovecraft, but obviously there's Hammer Horror, there's like occult stuff, there's definitely Jess Franco, Jean Roland, stuff like that. So, reason why I pick, pick Witch Cult today, like, you know, the cover's got like basically the demon devil from the poster of um, The Devil Rides Out, which is pretty famous Hammer Horror movie. But it's like, you know, occult elements, you know, kind of psychedelic imagery. Like, I think like, it could be the soundtrack or, like, a way of crafting something that's, like, a really good, like, psychedelic kind of 70s vibe, like, you know, a cult witchcraft kind of horror movie. Some kind of, like, Kenneth Anger. Oh, yeah, definitely Kenneth Anger. Yeah. But if you want to get more abstract, you can go definitely more Kenneth Anger with, like, Lucifer Rising and shit like that. Mm-hmm. Or you could go, like, more trash cinema of Jean Roland and Jess Franco and things. I'd, I should say the Jess Franco that is, well, they do kind of, like... A lot of their stuff also leans into like the sexploitation end of the spectrum too. Yeah. So yeah, you can go a lot of different ways with it. Nice. Some other picks we had and talked about was uh, the record by the Afghan Whigs called Black Love. Afghan Whigs kind of came out during the alternative rock grunge boom. They were on Sub Pop for a little bit, then got signed to a major label. I forget which one they were on for a bit. They eventually ended up on Columbia Sony mm-hmm. for like their last mainstream record, but like I think the two records that you and I probably... Well, there's three records that came out I think are untouchable from them. There's Congregation, there's Gentleman, and there's Black Love. And I think, you know, Gentleman and Black Love like are my two favorites, and I think they're both could be, you know, albums that could be movies. But I kind of went with Black Love, and I just want to talk about it because I think after they recorded it, the intent was to kind of take the concept, themes, vibe, or whatever you want to call it from Black Love, and actually make a movie out of it. I know Greg Dooley, who is the lead singer, guitarist, and main songwriter for Afghan Wigs, was friends with Ted Demi, who did Who's the Man? You know, one of the great Dr. Dre and Ed Lover, like, hip-hop movies. Mm -hmm. And Ted, obviously, was also Jonathan Jonathan Demi's brother. And Ted had, unfortunately, passed away very early on, tragically. And I I know um, he also did a movie called Beautiful Girls that, like, Greg Dooley was in and stuff like that. I think they, I don't know if it was with him specifically, but there was talks of doing Black Love as a kind of a movie and it just never panned out. Mm-hmm. And I guess the best way to describe Afghan Wigs, it's like indie alternative rock stuff, but huge like soul music influence shoved in there to the point that like, damn dude, like I don't know how to explain it. It's like, it's definitely kind of like sleazy rock and roll, but like, I guess if, like, someone on Motown, like, listened to a lot of Rolling Stones and tried to record a record, maybe maybe that, oh, I, I'm fucking shocked myself that I just came up with that. <laughs> <laughs> They're definitely a, uh, they, they definitely had to grow on me. It wasn't a, a band that I loved the first time I heard them, I have to say that, but, uh, but I definitely absolutely love the Afghan Wigs. Other picks, we're going to go more on the metal end of the spectrum and talk about Cannibal Corpse, The Bleeding which I think both of us and a lot of people consider probably one of the all-time great death metal records. Oh, yeah. 
And, you know, a couple things to point out. Like, I, I mean, honestly, we could have picked any Cannibal Corpse record, really. But I think, go with the Bleeding, because, like, I think that was their pinnacle mainstream success. And I also think it's it's actually a pop record. When you take away the misogyny and the murder and all that stuff, all those songs are fucking catchy pop songs. Yeah. It's the rubber soul of death metal. The, the, the revolver of death metal. It kind of really is. And I'm not, I, I know it's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> I was going to say Pet Sounds, but I think of Pet Sounds as being more of an outsider record than, than like a pop record. I mean, if Chris Barnes was doing <laughs> fucking three-part harmonies with the like, fucking growls and shit, not really. But I mean, this record, like, I guess you could go a couple different ways with it. Like, I don't, it's not really a concept record, but there's enough threads between the songs that you could make a, narrative out of it you could do like a seven or zodiac style like kind of highbrow thing based on this record batman hey you want to know my review of the batman (laughs) you want to know my review of the batman i want there's a lack of interest song that explains it we're going to plug it in right here That is my opinion of the Batman. I mean, if you like the Batman, that's fine. I just, I can't watch another fucking superhero movie ever again. I'm just, fuck, man, make something else. I know other people making other things, but just like, yeah, I have nothing against Robert Patterson. Matt Reeves is cool. Zoe Kravitz, I think, was incredible. Did you see Kimmy, by the way, the Steven Soderbergh movie on HBO Max? I did not. That movie's fucking amazing. Like, really, really great. I love Steven Soderbergh and stuff like that. I just can't watch another fucking superhero movie. And I can't watch another fucking Batman movie. Unless you're going to bring back Adam West style. Fucking like pop art, color, jokes. No trauma. No fucking, oh, your mom and dad got shot. So now you're fucking mad beating up, you know, criminals kind of shit. Bring back fucking zany Batman. Having fun. Fucking dancing. Criminals are like, you just put them in jail and they come back later. I don't want to shit on people because like, I know a lot of people were stoked for the Batman, and that's fine. I'm just, again, we don't have to play it again, but I think that Lack of Interest song pretty much sums up my feelings on it. But back to the bleeding, you could do something like that, (laughs) but (laughs) you you don't have to have a guy in a mask hunting stuff. You can just have a regular-ass detective, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, if you need to have some, the detective could have a mustache. If you need some kind of, like, Facial covering, mustache, goatee, I don't know, fucking mutton chops, whatever. You know what you can make a movie out of is the fucking Cannibal Corpse, Cannibal Corpse guitar player that was like <laughs> shooting at cops or whatever the fuck was going on in Florida. Dude, oh, fucking that guy. Um, oh, what's, the hell, what's it, his name? Like, they just pretty much just acted like he's disappeared to this point. Yeah, straight up. Oh, what, what the fuck is the theme? I'm blanking on it because we saw them after all that happened and they brought Eric Rutain from Hate Eternal to like fill in for him and then just basically like, yeah, Eric's now official member. Yeah. Just kind of moving on. But like that dude, I don't know what the fuck happened, but. Maybe his name was, I want to say it was Jack. Somebody's no, it wasn't Jack. That was one of the older ones. Like this was like a newer guy and he wrote all the really technical like yeah, yeah. songs and like, I don't know what happened, but like, you know, his house caught fire and like. He shows up to the neighbor's house trying to break in. There's, like, explosions. He pulls a knife on the fucking cops. They have to tase him. I mean, that, yeah, that could be a movie. But, like, no one's said shit about that since. Just, like, 
Yep, nothing to see here. Just Tampa, Florida for you. Uh, but the other way you could do the bleeding is if you, you want to do some kind of grimy 90s shot on video style things where it's just like ultra gory, kind of shaky effects, but like you give the A for effort because of how ridiculous and vile they are. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, someone could do the bleeding like that. And the last one I want to talk about, even though I'm not sure if it's a concept record, but like I think there's a concept that you kind of put to it, but I don't necessarily think it was like because I think the way the record came together was, you know, various different ways. And that record is Pig Destroyer, Prowler in the Yard. Which, if you never heard Pig Destroyer, I guess they're probably, modern terms, the biggest grindcore band going. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Definitely. They're, they're definitely kind of the... I think I think it's fair to say that they're kind of the new, the new era's Napalm Death or something like that, you know? Now, a little bit of background on Pig Destroyer. They're... Um, they kind of started as like a super group, secret super group as a, in a way, you know, cause it was, um, originally it was Scott Hall who was at one point an anal cunt, but he started doing agoraphobic nose, nosebleed and wanted to just do kind of a, I don't want to say fun, but just do a fun kind of grindcore band. And he brought on J.R. Hayes, who is at one point a vocalist in this band called Enemy Soil. And then I think they had a drummer that didn't last too long and they brought in Brian Harvey, at least during this era, who was also in enemy soil at one point or another. And we actually played with them before this record came out and they were pretty humble, even though it was like a bunch of guys that were in like some who used to be in bigger bands. They would like, yeah, just, we don't want to headline. We just want to play first or second or whatever. And we played with them at the reptilian 10th anniversary show, which was like 1999. Mm-hmm. And then I think, I think this record came out, what, 2001, two, something like that. Yeah, that sounds about right. So the, it was kind of a shift for them because it was definitely more metal, and I'd say a little bit more thrash influence. They were a force, man. They were. It was just nasty. It's different. Yeah, and like the way they use sound clips, and like they had like kind of noise loops, and they kind of lean more in the noise stuff because like a friend of ours, Blake, ended up doing their noise stuff like on later records after this one. But like, there's just something about this record. It's just really unsettling, especially. It's all set up in the beginning because it has like kind of a voiceover that's like computer generated. And like, I'm not trying to be offensive by saying this, but because at the time, Stephen Hawking's was very popular. It was like that. I guess he's a physicist or something like that. That couldn't like, you know, basically had to couldn't talk, or whatever, had to speak through a computer like he would type in the words and shit like that. And like they use pretty much the same system he did to narrate this opening story about this girl, Jennifer. And it was just like some weird, dark, supernatural unsettling shit was going on. No, no, no. This is beautiful. This is art. And then the fucking blast beats kick in. This record is really dark. I I, I guess I already said it, but like the way it's structured, it's like there's also a short story I think that's written in there about a guy that's obsessed with the Pixies debaser, just listening to it over and over again. He's like cutting off his fingers and he's going to go like kill this girl he's in love with, which I guess kind of goes back to the Count of Corpse thing. But like there's a lot of like this could be a really dark, twisted, like indie horror it could be just, it could be a, like a next level kind of like gory atmospheric, like 
even a little bit avant-garde in some ways. If Henry, portrait of a serial killer, decided to say, fuck this, we're showing everything. It's, it's the, but it's like the artsier, unner, artsier side of unearthed films. Yeah, I mean, it, it could be art horror. It could be like, yeah. it could be, I'm trying to think of a way, it could be in the realm of senses meets like, I don't want to say Friday the 13th or something. In the realm of senses meets like, I'm trying to think one of the more darker slashers, like maybe the Prowler or something like that. Mm-hmm. Deeply psychotic kind of thing. So those are, I mean, that. so that's some other picks we kind of talked about, but didn't want to do full section on. So with all that said, it's now time for... on the Cinematic Void podcast, where we talk about all the things we've been reading, watching, and or listening to. And I'm no longer bucking the trend, and I'm throwing to Nick to start first. All right. I have been reading. I have been dipping back into the uh, Jeff Dyer Zona book uh, about the film Stalker by Andre Tarkovsky. <clears throat> and I've just been kind of picking through that um, just because I'm going to go see it this Friday at the Arrow and uh, might even do a little podcasting about it afterwards. So just just kind of boning up on that a little bit. Bon- I wanna, boning up. Boning up. I want to pause you real quick because I want you to kind of talk about what you're working on this other podcast. So why don't you give a little plug here? Okay, might as well. So my buddy Nikolai and I are doing a Criterion podcast um, called Spine Numbers. And there are quite a few other uh, Criterion podcasts. So... Uh, I'm not quite sure what sets us apart just yet, other than the fact that we'll we challenge all of them to a a wrestling match. I mean, bare knuckle boxing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, if man, I'm gonna sound like a dick for saying this. If you challenge some of these people to like any kind of like physical activity, <laughs> I think you'll just dominate. And that's the plan. <laughs> <laughs> that's the total plan. We're we're gonna win. So uh, you guys should just all retire now. <laughs> that's the call out. So um. You, you're going to probably be recording. You, you've already been recording some episodes, but you're kind of getting ready and you're going to probably be dropping later this year. But this is just a spoiler for what's to come. We're going to be doing a kind of jump off episode, collaborative cinematic void spine numbers episode coming up. We're going to be doing John Frankenheimer's seconds. It'll be me, Nick and Nikolai. I think how, how, how does this show work? Just uh, we're going to watch the film together and then record and talk about it, uh, directly after we watch it. So that way it's just fresh, fresh in our minds. And, uh, so just doing a little different than we do here at the void. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's been a lot of fun so far and just, it's fun to just have a little movie night, watch a film with, with the homie, you know? And so we're going to have some guests on and watch a film together, talk about it awesome. and, and fight other, uh, criterion podcasts. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what I'm most interested in is the, the the fucking combat of fighting other Criterion podcasts. Yeah, it's I going, mean it's going down. It's like how dare you like do Blood Simple? <laughs> that we we already did that on our Criterion podcast. All right, I could see some WrestleMania shit. It's going down. It's going down. Anyway, the, <laughs> it's not to hijack this anymore. So that's what I've been reading. Uh, listening, I've been listening a bunch to the Pain of Truth, Age of Apocalypse split EP. Uh, there's two songs by each band. Uh, Pain of Truth is like a hardcore, like a metallic hardcore band. Uh, definitely, uh, definitely airing on the kind of like rapped vocals, kind of like E-Town Concrete record from earlier. 
Uh, so that that's why I really like Pain of Truth. And uh, the band that they did the split with is Age of Apocalypse. And they're more of like a, it's like a hard rock, heavy metal, but then also like maybe a typo negative kind of vibe to it, like a like weird singy vocals over the metal. Um, but it's good and heavy and uh, and really catchy. Also been listening to this demo by this band called Delusion from, uh, I think they're from New Jersey. And it's just some weird like evil, not quite black metal, like just like dark, weird, hardcore that I think is like just fucking weird and a little it's it's fucking really interesting jim i think you'll i think you'll like it check it out delusion with a z <laughs> uh, it's fucking they're they're cool as hell there was something i was supposed to mention about three guitars wasn't there oh yeah yeah and there's a new um there's a song called 10 digits away by this band called uh koyo um and it's total like emo pop punk like it's a total throwback to like fucking 2003 um and uh, it's definitely not the kind of music I liked in 2003, but for some reason I'll allow it in 2022. You sent me the music video to it, <laughs> and you're like, you're like, I should hate this, but I don't. Yeah, and, uh, yes. And the music video, like, the concept is like some woman's going getting like headshots, or she's modeling, or something like that. I actually like how the video looks because it kind of looks like, damn, like it kind of looks like 70s film. Like, there's a term when you're working on films and stuff called leader ladies. And like, if you occasionally like on film prints, there would be a leader lady, which would be also have the color bars. So the projections make sure like the colors lined up and stuff like that. And like the way it looks, it looks the way, like some of those shots look like it, like the way they frame the girl and stuff. It looks like one of those leader lady things. So I was like, I'm interested because of just how it looks. And then I see the band and there's like, how many fucking people are in this band? It like, I, I was confused. I'm like, wait, it's like, cause it's like a bunch of dudes and like, but definitely like how many people are in this fucking band, I think is a, is a, a reasonable response that you had. And, I, and I'm just <laughs> trying to look and it's just like, you know, it's just like, there's a singer and then like, there's a drummer and then it's like, is there three guitarists? And like, it's like, God damn dude. Usually when there's three guitarists, uh, it's one of the singers kind of hiding behind a guitar or something, you know? But uh, no, it's like this, this is things, like Iron Maiden. There's yeah, like three dudes, and then yeah, just a singer just standing alone. It's yeah, it's there. But it's a great song, and uh, and I went back and listened to their other EPs and whatnot, and and it's it's all cool too. But like, I don't know how much how much tolerance I have for maybe that genre of music, but that song rocks. So I don't know. Fucking, I think it you, I think you described it as fast break meets new. F- or no, our friend Tony told you and you told me, yeah. I, I want to make sure we're accrediting, right? <laughs> yeah, that, like Tony, Tony runs celebrated summer in Baltimore. One of the best record stores out there told you that basically he compared, he said it was like fast break doing newfound glory or some shit like that. I guess we haven't done an episode in a while, so I haven't had a chance to mention this, but I was just on our friend Scott's, Scott and Ash's uh, podcast, uh, Boys Bible Study. I should say Scott is actually one of the projectionists at the Lost Fields 3 Works for American Cinematheque. He, he usually runs my um, shows where we do the soft subtitling, so he got the pleasurable experience of watching Patrick Still Lives twice awesome. in the same day. And there's a really horrendous death scene. I, we're, I'm going to basically just demystify this here we did have to go back and record part of this podcast because i think when you listen earlier that patrick still lives screening hadn't happened i was joking about like getting fired and not being allowed the screening anymore well that didn't happen but poor scott had to watch this fucking movie twice and the real change was at where the movie like goes from one reel to the other the reel ended 
at the most horrendous gore scene in the movie, which is one of the most unspeakable, horrible deaths in any horror movie ever. And he had to watch it the whole time because he had to look at the fucking cue marks to change reels. Awesome. <laughs> with uh, those guys, the Boys Bible Study podcast, I watched with them uh, a film called Shatter Dead, uh, which you may have seen, directed by Scooter McRae um, from 1994. Uh, that at the front of the the DVD or the front of the Blu-ray case, I can't remember who did that recently. It came out, um, it was one of those partner labels from Vinegar Sin. I think it's Saturn's Core. Yeah, Saturn's Core for sure. Um, <clears throat> but it says, God hates you across the front of the uh, Blu-ray. And it, it was great. It's a great, like, low-budget 90s film. Um, definitely, yeah, I, I, I highly recommend it. It's kind of funny, as we talk about Patrick Still Lives and what happens in there, because there's something maybe not as horrendous, but just equally as graphic and unsettling that happens with a different object in totally. Shattered Dead. I, w- I actually, I won't, uh, I won't give away too much of it here. I recommend you actually just go check out the Boys Bible Study podcast and uh, the episode I was on. Uh, you can find it, you know, wherever the fuck you find podcasts. If you, when you get done listening to this episode, just go look it up on your whatever on your platform. Web, on your thing. On your thing. It'll be there. <laughs> Uh, I also recently watched uh, The Celebration by uh, Thomas Vinterberg, uh, and it is, I believe, the first of the Dogma 95 uh, series that him and, I believe, Lars von Trier uh, concocted. I just trying to do something different with cinema and, and work with lower budgets and I mean, the Dogma 95 thing, they all had like a set of 10 rules. Okay. And then... But I think one of the rules was they got to break one of those rules each time. I, I've, it's been a while since <laughs> I, I'm up on my Dogma 95. But, like, they made a lot of – I think it was all shot, like, mini DV and, like, had to be, like – I forget what aspect ratio. There's a bunch of stuff. But, like, there, there were specifics. But, like, a lot of those people that made those movies came out of it and ended up having really interesting and – I don't want to say big careers, but definitely interesting careers afterwards. Mm-hmm. Like, I think um, Vinterberg was um, – I think it, I don't know if his movie's up for an Oscar, but it was definitely like maybe it was last year. I can't remember when it was because like all these years, because we we did a thing with him for the Cinematheque. We had a we did we recorded a, we did a pre tape Q and A for something of his. So okay, um, but yeah, Celebration I, I liked it a lot. Um, it's, it's definitely it's it's dark and fucked up, and uh, you you get so sucked into it that you forget that it's super like lo fi. It's done super well. I, I really liked it, so highly recommended. Yeah, I guess that's it for me, man. How about you? For read, uh, the only thing I've been reading recently is I won this book off of a, I think it's an L.A. bookseller type thing, a friend of the void, Mad Average, like tipped me off. He's like, hey, you might want to grab this. So I ended up getting this book for like eight bucks. It's called Bewitched in Salem by Captain Henry C. Nichols. It was kind of original, like kind of history, Salem, Massachusetts history kind of book. It was originally, I think, published in maybe late 60s, early 70s. Version I have was reprinted from 83 and slightly updated. And, like, not all the information is, like, historically accurate now because, you know, you learn more things as it goes, but it's kind of a cool time capsule because if you remember, if you listen to the Salem, well, Massachusetts podcast episode we did when we were talking to the um, Rachel Christ from the Salem Witch Museum, you, you know that Salem used to not lean as far away as possible from like the witch trials 
And now it's Salem is fucking hate to say because I love this. Pl- I love going there, but it's fucking Disneyland now. Mm-hmm. Like you try to go in October, it's fucking. You might as well be paying five thousand dollars to go on that fucking Star Wars boat that Disneyland is trying to get people to go on or something. It's fucking expensive now. Like, I mean, I, I'm kind of waiting for like that trend to die down, but whatever. Anyway, it's a nice piece of history, and like, and I'm just gonna say this: Salem's cool any time of the year you go. It's a nice little seaside coastal town, New England nightmares vibes, all that stuff. You know, you could put, a, you could walk around, put on that Blackheart Procession three record, and kind of get some vibes. So that's what I've been reading. Uh, watch, I watched a movie called Tightrope, which stars Clint Eastwood. Isn't cre- he's not credited as the director, but my understanding is the guy that was directing it ended up working a little too slow for Clint's liking, and Clint took over. This the reason why I talk about it is this was a movie I missed, and um, we've been talking about doing another Giallo Jason episode for a little bit, and. I read somewhere that it was like, this is Clint Eastwood in a Giallo. I'm like, there's no fucking way. <laughs> and I'm not 100% on it. It's I'll definitely say it's Clint Eastwood doing kind of like the hetero version of cruising with lots of kink. Basically, he's a New Orleans cop. He's got two daughters, one of which is played by his real-life daughter. And, like, he collects stray dogs and stuff. And, like, he's hunting a sex killer in New Orleans. But after he's off the clock, he's picking up hookers and going to massage parlors and stuff and, like, doing kinky sex. Like, he's, like, handcuffing the girls and stuff like that. And, like, it is sleazy as fuck, man. Right on. And, like, the way the killer's portrayed is definitely kind of Giallo-esque. So, I think we're going to talk about this at some point. But I was really surprised and, like, I, you know, I really enjoyed this movie. Cool. And there's a point where it's, like, is this going to be, like, a four or a five? like rating on letterbox. I think I ended up going by four and a half because like there's a bit in there that just like jumped it up. It's like, all right, cool. But this is a movie like kind of looking forward to revisiting. And I checked the Warner brothers site to see if they had a 35 millimeter print and they definitely do. Oh, sweet. So look, look for that screening coming to a cinematic Boyd show near you. Other things I watched, I watched deadly games, which is kind of a early eighties slasher. Although it doesn't, it feels more like a 70s movie. It feels like some kind of 70s, like, drama with slasher elements thrown in. The opening to it's incredible. Like, there's a killer in a ski mask, very torso-esque. But then, and, like, basically this killer plays this board game that has, like, Frankenstein, Dracula, and shit in it. He's, like, rolling dice and then, like, goes and kills a woman. And there's some interesting things in there. Like, the town is full of fucking swingers and some shit. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on. It's, you know, I I still don't know if I really loved it or liked it, but I thought it was a really interesting watch. Has Steve Rails back in it. He plays a really creepy projectionist character. And also has Dick Buckus, former Chicago Bear in the movie, as like, I think he plays the chef at the diner or some shit. And then there's a scene where they play football and he's wearing his own jersey. It's fucking crazy. Duh, Bears. Movie also has Colleen Camp in it, who was, who I recently had as a guest when I screened Death death game and you know when i had eli roth do the intro of that movie he was basically making kind of a joke that colin camp did like three movies in a row which were death game deadly games and game of death with bruce lee oh wow it's a it's quite a deadly hat trick there another thing i watched was eyes of a stranger directed by ken wiederhorn who directed shockwaves but more importantly he directed meatballs too nice one of the greatest sequels ever made 
this is kind of like, I think it started as like more of a serious kind of thriller. And then because slasher movies were kind of on the big boom, kind of geared it more to be a slasher. Tom Savini did the effects. Stars Jennifer Jason Lee in her, I guess, her feature film debut. It was surprisingly really good, really nasty. And it is kind of a, I want to say, it's kind of like that one Audrey Hepburn movie where she's blind. Because um, Jennifer Jason Lee's character is blind and mute. Mm-hmm. Because something traumatic happened to her, and like, and there's like a, there's some really intense stuff. I can't think of the name of the Audrey Hepburn movie where she's blind, and like, even the killer in the movie is kind of based on the guy that's like stalking Audrey Hepburn in like that movie. I, let me look this up real quick. All right, I used my one lifeline and looked this up. The movie's called Wait Until Dark, and the villain in the movie is actually Alan Arkin, and like the killer in um, Eyes of a Stranger has the same kind of weird like. Mo Howard haircut kind of thing that they have. So there's similarities to that, but like this movie was like, it was really surprising just how fucking mean and nasty it was. So no, I mean, this was part of like Ken Wiederhorn's, like I consider great run. He made shockwaves. He made this, he made King fucking frat. I, that's actual titles. King fucking frat. One of the most trashy sex comedy animal house ripoffs ever made that I hope will come out on Blu-ray at some point. And of course, meatballs too. For listen, um, a couple of Griselda releases dropped, kind of a couple of weeks apart. The first one was Conway the Machine, God Don't Make Mistakes. This is his major label debut, which um, came out on Shady Records. I think this is the last fulfillment of like those Griselda Shady Records things after like What Was Sheen Gun Do, West Side Guns, um, Who Killed the Sunshine, or whatever the fuck it's called. Or what is it called? I already used my lifeline, so whatever that West Side Gun record is. And this is the... Conway's record was the last of that deal. It's I think there's a lot of bangers on it. There's a couple songs that are a little too R&B for my taste. I'm not saying they're bad. It's just like it's not kind of what I'm into kind of thing. But I do give him credit because like he raps his ass off. Like he gets very introspective on it. So it's not just like coke and drug rap. He's like, you know, kind of goes deep. I know he's done songs about like because if you know anything about Conway Machine, he got shot like nine times and Basically, half his face is paralyzed and gave him Bell's palsy, and he's, like, lucky to be alive. And he gets into it on a couple songs, especially the last song, and just basically how, you know, would I be in the position I am now if this didn't happen kind of thing. So it's kind of a deep record. I enjoyed it. The other Griselda project came out was Benny the Butcher's Tana Talk 4, which is part of his series. And I think this was, like, this was produced entirely by The Alchemist and um, Derringer, who's kind of the house, like, Griselda producer. And maybe a couple other people, like Beat Butcher, like, assisted on some of those Derringer tracks. But, like, it's kind of the grimy record. I saw some reviews saying, like, yeah, just more of the same. Still good kind of thing. But, like, I, I think it's a really, really solid record. I, uh, I don't know if you mentioned it, but I think it's his first record on Def Jam. Uh, no, it's not the Def Jam record yet. This is I think this is going to be the last record he puts out before the Def Jam record comes out. Although I think there's like he's got a Black Soprano family record coming out too, which won't be on Def Jam. It's kind of interesting that Griselda has this weird deal that like they sign to a major label and then put out like 15 fucking records before the major label one comes out. I mean that's kind of what Conway did because like Conway put out that from a from a King to a God record last year, which I kind of like a little bit more than God Don't Make Mistakes, just personal taste wise, but like. It's it's just interesting because like those dudes are like just running shit because like they got pretty sweet deals you know, 
get a big advance, have a major label record, and get to put shit out on the side. They're putting out records so fast. So I'm, I'm, it, I'm having like, I'm having a hard time keeping up. I mean, I, we made this joke before, but like they've, they're kind of the guided by voices of hip hop, right? And and uh, I don't know, you know, uh, uh, clearly I've been more into metal and hardcore and whatnot lately. I'm just just kind of stuck in that little loop. But at the same time, it's like maybe I am getting a little tired of like because these guys are putting out a, re- a new record every three months. So, or sometimes it, I don't know, it feels even more frequent than that, especially because now they're operating as solo artists. So they're able to stagger their releases. And then, you know, as far as just Griselda goes, they really do have a new record out every two weeks. And that's, that's great. But, uh, it, it can, uh, it could fall under oversaturation and I, I can get that fatigue of it. I'm getting a little burned out, but I will go back to these records. Um, I'm definitely interested in hearing that new Benny the Butcher for sure. No, I mean, I liked them both. I, I like the Benny record slightly better, just more geared to like my taste kind of thing. Other hip hop I've been listening to, Pusha T, who's obviously getting ready to release uh, another record sometime this year. I think his follow up to Daytona released a single called Die Coke, which I don't know if you've heard. Yeah, it's really good. It's a fucking catchy as fuck song. He actually went on Stephen Colbert and fucking performed it and had fucking snow falling and shit. It's like, wow. It's like, and like, there's not many swear words, so he didn't have to change much, but it's just like, wow, man, you're just fucking rapping about Coke on national TV. Fucking great. He also put out another single that was collaborative with this guy called Nigo, I think. And, um, I don't know if this is going to actually be on his forthcoming record, but like, it's a really good song. It's called, um, hear me clearly. It's got, it's got a nasty hook. It's like the beat. I think it. I think both of these songs were like Kanye produced or like that kind of stuff. I know he's like worked with the Neptunes again or Neptunes. No, Neptune is a death metal band we played with in the fucking late nineties. Neptunes is the hip hop super group producers thing. Sorry. I've been I've been thinking about Neptune a lot lately because they have the song "We Need a Nuclear War." We need a nuclear <laughs> war. So we're going to talk about this fucking death metal band that you and I play with back in like 1999 at a place called How Daddies in Baltimore. How Daddies is literally is a fucking dive bar that had a stage in the back where they in du- the basement in the basement. It's a dugout fucking dirt basement, I think. Yeah, it was, fu- it was a low ass ceiling. Low ass ceiling, and we played with this band and like the band Nick and I were in at the time called Inspire. We played really short set. I think. We played 16 songs in 16 minutes, and the only reason we played 16 minutes is because somewhere in the middle, our bass player at the time like was moshing around, went too far out, and knocked over the the bass amp, and like took out like a bunch of shit. And then after the sh- after we got done playing, the dude from Neptune, whose name was Shad, not Chad, Shad, was like, "This is very unprofessional. You need to be able to at least play a half hour." It's like, dude, we played every song we had. Shad, like a Shad, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Is that his? Fuck if I know. That's actually his first, middle, and last name. (laughs) (laughs) It could be, but like, yeah. And then they played, and like they, fuck, dude. They had their own like lighting setup. Like they wanted to be pro. They thought they were on the fucking like goddamn decibel like metal tour or something. That's before decibel was a thing. Like they had someone running their lighting cues and all that. And this is fucking how daddies, which is like. A fucking dive bar with a fucking stage in their basement with this fucking deep fucking pit and a low ceiling. And they got fucking light cues and all kinds of shit. And like, 
I I can't remember anything, but I just remember like the first song is called "We Need a Nuclear War," and like we were fucking pissing ourselves with laughter. They're fucking sick. Yeah, man. I want. I, I I still think of them often to this day, and that was twenty plus years ago. So uh, th- those are the memories. Um, how did we even get to that? Oh yeah, I, yeah, because we were talking about Pusha T and the Neptunes, and I said Neptune instead. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> <laughs> this is a tangent for the ages. I've also been listening to getting away from hip hop to more, I guess, metal, hardcore, melodic hardcore. I've been listening to this band Momentum that you hit me to, which is kind of ignorant '90s, early 2000s hardcore mm-hmm. with definitely metal chugging riffs. Really dig that. Apparently, they got in some trouble recently playing a show where they pulled a gun on some kids. They pulled a gun on somebody in in uh, New Mexico, in Albuquerque, I think. I don't know. Who cares? It was over a, over a mic stand or some shit. I mean, it, this it reminds me of us going to hardcore show in the '90s and like just how fucking ignorant, tough guy some of these dudes were being. They're like, we're fucking hardcore. We got fucking guns in our van, and like a lot of those dudes definitely had fucking guns in their van. I mean, we talked about the E-Town days of fucking knife checks and fucking gun checks and all that shit. Kids these days do not know how fucking safe shows are. And we're like fucking 16 around like fucking big ass dudes with weapons. Ah, what a world. Um, I have also been listening to the new record by this band Midnight called Let There Be Witchery. Midnight is kind of like, I'd say, black metal influence rock and roll kind of thing. And I actually... Surprisingly, I got a call from friend of the void, Scott Carlson of the band Repulsion Cathedral and stuff like that. He texted me at like seven o'clock on a like, I think it was last Tuesday or Wednesday. It's like, hey, I got an extra ticket for Midnight and Mayhem. You just have to be here at 745. So I was like, fuck it. Got in a fucking Uber, went down to the Wiltern, saw Midnight, saw a couple minutes of um Mayhem. Cool. It, I, yeah. I think Mayhem has kind of lost their luster to me. I, I'm not trying to say it bad, because definitely a lot of people there were in Corpse Paint and Digging Mayhem, but Midnight was a lot of fun. Right on. And the last record I listened to, which on the surface is a metal record, but in reality was not. It's um, by this man called Blood Incantation, who put out some very, I guess, prog rock death metal records. Like The songs are like anywhere from like three or four minutes to like 15, something like that, at least based on their last several releases. And I kind of dig that stuff. So I checked out their new record and I started listening to it. And it's like a kind of ambient electronic thing. And I was like, cool. I assume this is the intro goes to the second song continues. I'm like, huh, that's interesting. I guess the, I guess the metal is going to kick in here. Goes to the third track. I was like, so I was looking at the songs or name and number. It's like, oh, maybe it's a split. Like part of it's like electronic because they're experimenting or some shit. And then it goes to the second part of the record and it's still like that. So it's just an ambient electronic record. And it's actually really good. However, I think it came out on Century Media or one of those metal labels. They have it listed as metal. So I'm sure there's some fucking metal head that's like, yeah, I'm going to listen to this new sick blood incantation record and just like being bummed out that it's an ambient electronic record being bummed out that it sounds like tangerine dream instead of cannibal corpse yeah i mean the record's great i just feel like maybe i mean i went in cold with no idea what was in the record or what what it was yeah but i mean by the looks of it and 
I, I can't say that I've paid close attention, but I had seen that that new record was on my radar a little bit, but I had definitely not heard that it was an electronic record uh, at all. And it doesn't look, it doesn't like by the looks of the cover, it doesn't look like they're doing anything different. They, you know what I mean? So yes, you could easily be tricked into thinking like you're going into a, a death metal record and you are not. Yeah. I mean, it's really cool. If you dig like, yeah, Tangerine Dream is a pretty good comparison. So if you like Tangerine Dream, but don't like death metal, you'll probably dig this record. If you like death metal and you like Tangerine Dream, you'll actually really like this record. If you just like death metal, um, you're going to be kind of disappointed. But anyway, that wraps up this episode of the Cinematic Void Podcast. Coming up on the next episode, we're doing a pretty cool kind of by request episode. Over the last few months, I've had people ask me about like, you know, hey, I'm interested in film programming or like doing screenings in my area. So I'm we're going to do a whole episode on film programming, nuts and bolts, resources, that kind of thing. Kind of excited. It's going to be a little different than what we've been doing, but I feel like it's worth discussing because we do talk about the programming side of Cinematic Void on here. And just this is going to be more of an insight thing. So if you want more like movie talk, other episodes are coming. But if you want to learn about basically how events get made, how films get picked, you know, booking and that kind of stuff. This would be the episode for you coming up on cinematic void in person. By the time this comes out, we'll be wrapping up our, um, let's say cinematic sequel series over the lost fields three, just past would be like the Deadpool with a special video intro by Duff McKagan of guns and roses, which I was really excited that that happened. Shout out to Dell James, who's their tour manager and good friend of the void. And then closing out with Halloween two and glorious 35 millimeter. And then in April, I'm doing Horror by the Water, which is going to be movies like Carnival of Souls, Messiah Evil, and The Fog. So until next time, see you in the void. music like we do you'll love sessions new album called secret love it has 48 soft rock classics by the original artist these songs really bring out the animal in some people